0: If you want to do something, you look for the way to do it. You don't look for the reasons not to, or somebody said, oh, that's impossible. That's That's not how my mindset worked at all.
1: What does it take to do something that no person has ever done before? Today's guest knows, because she's done it. The first free ascent of a climb that was once considered impossible.
0: So we were creating our own rules that made sense to us. It's not what other people tell you. It's it's what you really see as possible.
1: Mountain Meister is supported by the Delorme InReach Explorer, the world's only satellite communicator with built-in navigation. Send and receive text messages, create waypoints, and find your way back from anywhere in the world. For $35 off your first purchase, visit inreachdelorme.com and use the code MEISTER at checkout. You can find this as well as all of our other deals on the deals page at mtnmeister.com. Hello everyone and welcome to Mountain Meister. Welcome to another episode. This is Ben Shank, your host, and today with us we welcome the legend, Lynn Hill, She's an American rock climber in the late 80s and 90s. She was widely regarded as one of the best sport climbers, and in 1993, she became the first person to ever free climb the nose on El Cap. The following year, she did it again in less than 24 hours this time. She's the author of Climbing Free, My Life in the Vertical World. Lynn Hill, welcome to Mountain Meister.
0: Well, thank you, man.
1: So, Lynn, a lot more has happened in your life in the vertical world than my life in the vertical world. Uh, (laughs) In fact, my life is more characterized by the horizontal and the diagonal world. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Quite literally, I don't do much rock climbing. But that is the beauty of Mountain Meister. We are going to learn about what made you this pioneer in the vertical world how you have inspired so many people and what we can learn from that. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So let's go back to the beginning just so we can learn how you fell in love uh, with rock climbing. 14 years old, I read.
0: Yes, I was in Southern California with my older sisters the first day I ever climbed. And my brother and my sister's boyfriend went off and did a climb of their own leaving my older sister in charge of teaching me and my other sister how to tie into the knots or into the swiss seat as it turned out we didn't have a harness so we just made out of webbing which you can do you just basically use a water knot and and loop the uh this this webbing around your body anyway um (laughs) she had shoes that were a little bit too big for me and it was a slab, this place called Big Rock, which is unfortunately closed right now for some sort of work that they 're doing, but it was a great practice area, very subtle sloping holes, nothing very you know obvious that you could grab onto like a handhold, so it was very technical balance kind of climbing. But the scariest thing was that my sister didn 't mention this that day, but she was afraid of leading, so she showed us how to tie this with seat and everything and and she sent us up on our first lead, first climb, first lead. <laughs> <laughs> That's not typical, but <laughs> I figured it's a real sport with a, you know, rope and gear and it must work. People have tried it and proved that it works. So I figured she knew what she was doing. But when you're up there and you look down and realize that you're going to fall down below your protection, mm-hmm. you definitely understand that. You know, things could be a little scary when you start sliding down or falling down. Your your brain comes up with all kinds of fantasies about what might happen to you, which is usually worse than the actual fact. If you If I had fallen, it probably wouldn't have been that bad. But my other sister, on her first lead, she got a little bit off route. And I could tell that if she didn't get back to the right where the bolt was, she could possibly have hit the ground or mm. slid down. So she never went climbing again after that.
1: <laughs> well, you say scary there. Did you like it?
0: I think I was taking it in. It was so uh, intense and different than anything that I'd ever done that I didn't know what to think about it. But I went out the next time. And and by then, I was sure that I was going to go any chance I could out in Joshua Tree. It's such a beautiful place. Sunsets are gorgeous and the nature Joshua trees and the barrel cactus and colors and nature and and even being close to the indian culture cuz a lot of the climbing areas that we went to back then were places that the indians liked so mm-hmm. i would fantasize about those times and it just made me feel more connected to nature instead of where i lived in orange county which was a bunch of you know sidewalk and cities there were parks. It's you know, Southern California is not a bad place. The weather is certainly great, and and there is the ocean. But uh, climbing is something that suits so many of my um, my needs, I guess, or temperament. I, I like to move my whole body. I was a gymnast when I um, first was introduced to climbing. I already had flexibility and a certain kind of whole body awareness and strength so climbing was just a natural for me
1: yeah so even though you're in Orange County uh, Joshua Tree is not that far away maybe maybe a couple of hours do you think if you didn't live as proximal to climbing areas uh, that you would have found climbing and been the climber you are today like what if you grew up in the Midwest
0: yeah hard to know but I think I would have. It would have been much later because when I first started climbing, I didn't know that it even existed. Mm-hmm. I thought about, you know, hiking. You could imagine people walking up mountains, but I really didn't know how to visualize what rock climbing would look like. There were no pictures. There was, you know, it was not promoted in advertisements or anything. It was not part of our uh, our culture here in the U.S.
1: Yeah, it's so, it's funny, and I was watching some old footage, and this is much later than what we're talking about right now, but 1989, you were on Letterman, and he knows absolutely <laughs> nothing about rock climbing in that interview, and as did many, many different people in, in the United States.
0: Yeah, it was pretty novel meeting David Letterman, he's, he's a really funny guy. Mm-hmm. And he did pretty good, actually. Yeah, he
1: did. Once you put him, we'll, we'll have the footage on your Meister profile page, Lynn. But uh, for the listeners, Dave couldn't complete the route that that Lynn did in the studio. But Dave had his own on the left side of the wall. And yeah, he he got up there pretty far. Yeah. He, much younger than the Dave Letterman we know now. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, let's let's go back 10 years before that. That was in the late 80s. Let's go to the late 70s. You're climbing in Yosemite. Uh, here's an excerpt from your autobiography, Lynn. You, you describe the climbing community as a ragged, occupying army, annoying park rangers by <laughs> eluding camp fees, overstaying their welcome, and comporting themselves like gypsies. <laughs> tell, tell us more about that time.
0: Basically, we were trying to climb as much as possible and have as much freedom as possible. and School was one thing that I did, you know, I did follow the rules there. I went to school and and mostly, you know, did okay. I did my homework because I figured that one day I would want to go to college so that I could have a job that would allow me freedom. And usually you have to be um, educated to get jobs like that or, or creative, smart in some way. So I figured I would get a job in the health-related field and that would allow me to be like a nurse or physical therapist was actually the occupation that I figured I would do. And I do still have interest in that, but um, I'm a little bit uh, less conventional than uh, what physical therapists do. And, And that was kind of the ethic of our ragged group, you know, we just wanted to be in places like Yosemite and... If you wanted to be there and you and you didn't have a job or at least one that allowed you freedom, you you just work in stints. So when I was in school, I would work at fast food restaurants, I uh, babysat, I cleaned houses, I did whatever I needed to do to earn just enough money to pay my way in in the car, so gas and food. And I don't think we really paid much in the way of camping fees because back then. Uh, We just stayed in the rescue site in camp four. So if they ever needed you, they would come straight to the rescue camp and you would be, you know, sort of on call. And that was the trade off. So you could get by pretty cheap. I think I spent seventy five dollars one
1: summer. A whole summer. The whole summer. Oh, and inflation adjusted, that's still not a lot of money. <laughs> it's not.
0: And and I did collect aluminum cans, which I f- figured was a good service. Mm-hmm. Cleaned up the valley and got a nickel for each aluminum can and didn't waste the aluminum. And, um, and obviously, it's not nice to see trash anyway. So that was one way I supplemented my income. But really, I didn't eat much. And uh, I was there to go rock climbing and... I didn't have a car once I was there. I didn't even have a tent when I was there. I just threw my bag and whatever belongings I had in the bear box and went off climbing for the day. So if you don't have money or job or, you know, like a regular job, you kind of have to adapt in these sort of creative ways, which is not uh, consistent with what most people consider normal.
1: So. You you inspire many, many different people out there. You're, you're known for being very inspirational to women, some of the things that you've done uh, as a woman in the sport. How many other women were at, at Yosemite when you were?
0: Well, it's hard to know exactly, but it, the community was pretty small. We all pretty much knew each other in Southern California. Northern California, um, I didn't know everybody, but we started to know the regulars, people like Ron Kauk and and that whole group that uh, Ron did the first ascent of uh, Midnight Lightning and then a hold broke and then Backer did the first ascent of the way it is today. Anyway, um, we ended up being kind of a close-knit group, and there weren't that many women. There was Mari Gingery, who is still a good friend today, and um, there were a few other women like um, Jessica Perrin, um, and then just a few other women around our little group, but um, not that many. And today there are so many strong women. It's, it's really great to see, and I'm glad that a lot of women have discovered what a great sport climbing is. It's, mm-hmm. it's great for your mind and your body, and it's a great pretext for travel, and I think now the the secret's out of the bag there. <laughs> People get it.
1: So, like, why were you so good, though? When we look at how you performed and some of the things that you were able to do, uh, first free climb of, L- of uh, the nose, wh- why were you so good? And even by today's standards?
0: I think that my upbringing climbing was part of it. We started out on, uh, like I said, that low angle slab which actually today it's totally underrated. People avoid slab climbing because it's sort of tedious and technical and very delicate. But that kind of skill is really, really useful. It teaches you precision. It teaches you how you can stand on almost nothing and still get purchase out of it if you're very careful in how you apply pressure and how you transition from one hole to another. So we learned very technical skills from the beginning and that's pretty much what we focused on for many many years we didn't get on the steep sport climbing stuff until much later so you know people would call something 510 and back then well actually when I first started climbing 510 was defined as the limit of human ability (laughs) (laughs) well nowadays warm up on you know much harder routes and you know beginning climbers can do 510 but um they might not be the the technical 510s that I'm talking about Mm -hmm. because back then the old school not like if you go to an old cliff traditional climbing area those 510s are really not easy Uh and very good climbers could easily slip off of something like that so um I think part of it has to do with my upbringing and um We were pretty tough back in the day. We didn't complain. We didn't um, make a big deal about, you know, being scared or something like that. We just accepted that as part of um, the path and, and how we learned. So that was a big part of it. And then as far as the nose goes, I'd been climbing for about 20 years. So I was also competing right before that. And I decided to stop competing because I saw the way that, competitions were going more and more to artificial walls and it's a totally different style of climbing. It's not anything like what I just described, you know, slab climbing. It's not subtle. It's just more, um, brute strength and it is body positioning too, but it wasn't the way that I wanted to express my climbing and it was a means to an end. I was making a living through it, but I figured, um, I could just keep doing that and become dependent on that and become imprisoned by it hmm. and literally imprisoned because you're inside. You have to climb on artificial walls if you want to win competitions on artificial walls, hmm. and that's not what I'm about. And so I figured I had all this fitness and experience climbing over in Europe on these very steep physical sport routes, and it taught me also another level of um, being able to push myself when I'm feeling really tired when your forearms are burning and you think you can't hold on another second actually that a lot of that is in your mind I mean it's it's physical too but you can do a lot more than your mind sometimes believes you know in that moment of uh, extreme fatigue you can kind of just do what I call a mental shift and focus on the solution, focus on the next hold, take a big breath, readjust your body position. And usually you can find a way to get past that moment of difficulty.
1: I like what you said there. You can do more than what your mind believes. Um, Humans are really relative animals. Like we, we like to compare things. Do you think that some of your success was a result of not having history to compare yourself to?
0: I do think so. Um, Like I said, we were a group that was going against mainstream society. So we were creating our own rules that made sense to us. Mm -hmm. And we were looking inward towards what we were capable. And, and that is the truth. It's not what other people tell you. It's, it's what you really see as possible. You know, if you want to do something, you look for the way to do it. You don't look for the reasons not to. Or somebody said, "Oh, that's impossible." That's that's not how my mindset worked at all. Mm-hmm. It was, um, you know, from the day that I was told that I was a tomboy because I like to climb trees. I said, "Okay, that's fine. Then I'm a tomboy. All right." And so I accepted that um, whatever labels and stereotypes were out there, that I was just going to look at the situation. From my own perspective, which gives a lot of strength to seeing solutions where other people are conditioned, that, you know, to think that things are not possible. Or you shouldn't do things this way. Mm. Getting back to the, um, the, the other question you asked, I think that for the nose, I had to have both traditional climbing skills and a high level of, say, sport climbing skills combined. And I think I was one of the few people in the country at that time that had that perspective. And so I think a lot of people, um, and especially people that were in Yosemite for years and years, if you don't get out and travel and change your perspective once in a while, you can get kind of stuck. And I think that in that time period, Yosemite was kind of stuck. It was There was not much going on in terms of new routes or, I don't know, I, I mean, maybe there were some things I just wasn't aware of, but it seemed like um, Yosemite has these cycles where there's a lot of interest and, and a lot of excitement. People push each other, and I think that's really important for a sport to progress is to have really motivated people spurring each other on, not in a bad way, not in a competitive, negative way, but in a way that is inspiring to others.
1: Humans enjoy comfort, though, right? We, we like to be comfort, comfortable. So how, how do you identify when you are stuck, and how do you get out of it?
0: Well, that's another cyclical thing, I think. Um, of course, we like to be somewhat comfortable in life. That's the that's natural tendency. But I think in order to grow and, and be engaged, you kind of have to get out of your comfort zone. So that's why we have goals in life, I think, is to kind of guide us towards something that's going to make us stronger, better, I don't know, more knowledgeable. So the goals are really important. And the goals uh, do also have some, you know, things that we have to accept, like discomfort, maybe you forgot to bring enough water, maybe you couldn't bring enough water, because it was too heavy or something. So you, you made the decision to drink less water. And that's not as comfortable as having water right there. Mm -hmm. So, um, fatigue is an obvious one uh, pain sometimes uh, um, jamming and a crack on El Cap mm. or several cracks all day long after a while your feet and hands get a little sore uh, but if you're used to it and you train consistently your skin actually adapts to it just like our climbing shoes that are not comfortable at all for a non-climber if you put on a climbing shoe that fits for performance <laughs> It is not comfortable, but like a ballet dancer's shoes, they, they get used to it and you get calluses in the right spots and you just kind of accept it. It's not something that you focus on. You focus on what you need to do to be successful at whatever your goal is.
1: More Lynn Hill coming up soon. But first, let's thank a sponsor of Mountain Meister, Champion Sport Extreme, or CSX. They make braces, straps, and compression socks that are engineered to withstand the demands of the elite athlete. CSX's compression socks are equipped with an extra-wide self-adjusting band at the top that prevents slippage, uh, a seamless toe box for greater comfort and less friction around your toes, and a V-guard design on the shin to reduce pain for those with shin splints and protection against shin splints for those who don't. For 50% off of your purchase, go to csxchampion.com and type in the code MEISTER at checkout. Thanks. Now back to the show. I want to talk about how sports are a reflection of the times. Uh, Lynn, you and I were talking about this before the show. Bear with me for two minutes as I... Explain to the listeners what I'm talking about. Uh, I took this great course in college. It was called History of Sports. And the underlying theme was how sports offer this incredible perspective into what American society was like at the time. Uh, Jackie Robinson, you know, like represented the fight for civil rights. Uh, I just read this other book called The Boys in the Boat. It's an incredible story about these guys from the University of Washington, uh, and they went and won gold at the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. Um, But every single person in that boat started from essentially nothing. Uh, Families were ruined by the Great Depression, and they all had to pay their way through college, but beating the likes of Harvard, Yale, Princeton in the U.S., and then going on to beat Germany and Italy in the Olympics. Um, but like, what an incredible reflection of what's going on in American society bouncing back from the Great Depression. And then one final example, just more recently, uh, Jason Collins in the NBA and Michael Sam in the NFL being the first openly gay athletes in their sports in a time when there are still many states where gay marriage is not legal. So we take all of this, we'll say sports are a reflection of the times how was rock climbing a reflection of what was going on in America at that time?
0: Well, I was born in 1961 and I, even though I was young, I was, you know, a toddler and and then a young girl during the sixties. I felt that it was a great time period in America because we were bouncing back from the war, uh, from World War II. And we were against discrimination of all kinds, Uh, you know, women's rights, uh, women were burning their bras and protesting the Vietnam War, and a lot of great things were happening then, and we were questioning authority, and if if you look at climbing back when I was, you know, first starting to climb, that was the culture that I I felt when I, I... came into that crowd of people, Mm. they were nonconformists. They were questioning authority because that's the way to evolve. Instead of just assuming these injustices, we were saying, no, we don't accept that. We question it and we're going to do it the way we believe is right without harming anybody else. We were actually very protective of the rock. Um, Mm. our, Our ethic was pretty much leave no trace uh, we would use removable protection devices as opposed to the previous generation using pitons that they had to hammer into the rock. And then they would take them back out by hammering them back out, which damaged the rock. So I started climbing during the clean climbing era when people were pretty much manifesting the values that were celebrated in the 60s through the way that we mm. climbed. And style was everything. It was all about how you got to the top, not getting to the top, because most of the big mountains around the world had been climbed. And, and though there are several that still remain unclimbed, um, that's not even the point. The point is how you do it. So that, that was a big reflection of the culture of probably more the 60s and, um, and this nonconformist, nonmaterialistic attitude.
1: That is so cool to hear. Were you were you aware of that during the time or is that something that you realized looking back upon it?
0: I don't know. I I think that I assumed a lot of things. Yeah. That this was progress, you know, that that women were going to get equality and actually <laughs> we had a lot more uh enthusiasm I think as a culture Uh, mainstream culture and and the climbing culture back then than we do now I think we almost even lost ground in some ways but not really we haven't gone backwards it's just that the enthusiasm is less because the 70s and 80s turned more into like the me generation it's been Mm -hmm. called and people um, got more materialistic because uh, I don't know why just because uh, marketing and mainstream society keeps trying to push people to buy stuff. And I think that climbers have always been against that. You know, don't just buy the next cool fashionable thing. We buy something that lasts. We wanted to be able to use it and and have it for a long time instead of having to buy stuff that you throw in the landfill.
1: Lynn, what a beautiful transition to our next topic, which is to get a gear recommendation from you? Give our listeners something that they have to have and probably won't throw in the landfill anytime soon.
0: Well, one thing that I always pack with me whenever I go somewhere is what's called a Houdini. And um, Patagonia makes this product. It's essentially like a wind and sort of water repellent product. So it's very thin. You can pack it into its chest pocket. So if you're on a climb, you can carry it on your harness without uh, too much weight or bulk, and sometimes that's very useful. I, I really don't like being cold, and if you're sitting at a belay, you're tied in and you can't like run around and jump around. You can move, you can wiggle, but it's nice to have wind protection and and just that little barrier that keeps you warm. And that's true for if I wanted to go for a run somewhere or anywhere, you know, traveling. It's it's nice to have something that you can just have wherever you are. In case you get cold. Um, let's see another item. I guess my climbing shoes go with me everywhere too. Mm-hmm. I use Scarpa, the Instinct. Um, there's a, a new, a newer version with Velcro, which I like the best. The slipper itself sometimes. Um, It's not enough because if you're heel hooking, it can slip off of your ankle or -hmm. like your heel. So the Velcro keeps that a little more solid and yet it's easy, you know, lacing a shoe up. I know it sounds like a small detail, but it's convenient to not have to lace up your shoes. I agree. Um, Petzl headlamp would be another thing that I always travel with.
1: Have you ever done anything non-rock climbing in your climbing shoes? Like, have you ever found an interesting use for them?
0: Uh, not That's really. That's a really
1: stupid question. Okay. Um,
0: if I were going to put my climbing shoes on, it would be for climbing. For climbing so <laughs> it might not be the standard uh, climbing wall or rock. It mm-hmm. Could be something in in town, some kind of like little fun challenge,
1: a fountain um, or a building. Yeah. <laughs> the Patagonia Houdini and the Scarpa climbing shoes on Lynn's Meister profile page on our website, mtnmeister.com. Let me tell all of the listeners that a supporter of ours, Moja Gear, is offering our listeners 15% off of everything in their online store. If you use the code Meister, M-E-I-S-T-E-R, at checkout, you also get a free block of chalk, With your order, mojagear.com, Meister at checkout. Lynn, a question from Natalie, who is a co-founder of Mojagear. She said to me, Ben, Lynn is such an inspiration, such a legend. She's curious if you've ever found any activity or hobby as fulfilling in all aspects of life as climbing. No. (laughs) Why not?
0: Well, I don't know. Uh, I started out as a little girl climbing trees and telephone poles. And don't ask me why. It was just something that I felt compelled to do. And so it's, climbing is the best expression of my physicality using flexibility, strength, grace, coordination, body awareness, all those things. But I will say one activity that I would love to do more of would be surfing, that would be a lot of fun in a different sort of way hmm. because you could go to the same surf spot every day and every day the waves are going to be different. Every wave is different. So you have a different dynamic going on. You've got moving water and you're adapting to you know a new wave every time even though it's yeah. kind of generally the same techniques. Uh, I don't think it would get boring. But I think that cl- that's one of the reasons why climbing actually – probably is the best one uh, besides the fact that I've put so many years into it that it becomes something else it's sort of like a Hmm. moving meditation and and you I, I don't know why but you you become more adapted to that sport and therefore you can get more out of it perhaps but climbing can challenge you on so many different levels you can try Bouldering, which is more power oriented, or you can try um, something really long. You can go to an exotic place in the world, and, and it's a great pretext to meeting other people and cultures and, and questioning again um, your views as an American, as our, our upbringing. We all are conditioned in certain ways, and when you step out of your familiarity, you can see it from a different perspective and it gives you some
1: insight. Good answer. Uh, Mm -hmm. One more question from the listeners. Uh, Linda Keller says she would like to ask you about the impact of moving to New York. Do you live in New York now or did you live in New York?
0: I did. And that that was actually kind of connected to what I just got done saying about changing your comfort zone and and what you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in Southern California and I decided to move to upstate New York to finish my college education. I actually went to four different colleges, wow. and uh, yeah, it took me a while to get through it. <laughs> in College, then UNLV for a semester, back wow. to Santa Monica College, and then I finished at SUNY New Paltz, and I got my degree in biology. And it was great to be 22 years old. I literally drove my Volkswagen van across the country. Of course, it broke down in St. Louis, which was kind of a <laughs> uh, fried my engine. But uh, I lived in upstate New York for eight years, and it was a great transition culturally and, and also in my climbing because it's a completely different type of rock, uh, different group of friends. And I think it, it was more similar to, say, a European kind of environment There was a lot of more, uh, I'd say, ethnicity, and um, I just really enjoyed the New York uh, community, and and I still do. I still go back and visit, and that's indirectly how I got invited to France. In fact, I just had dinner with Jim McCarthy the other night, who was the president, president of the American Alpine Club back then, and he extended this offer from the French Federation to bring a few Americans around and visit some of the cliffs in France. So by my association with uh, Jim McCarthy, living in New York State, I got invited to France for the first time. So it seemed like moving eastward was kind of an interesting evolution in my life. And, uh, and now I live in the middle of the country in Boulder, Colorado.
1: Mm-hmm. It's amazing. It's like Steve Jobs said, you can't connect the dots going forward, you can only connect them going backwards on that note for what's coming in the future. You were telling me before that you had a technique video coming out. What's it called again?
0: It's called, uh, the art of free climbing because climbing is really a spontaneous thing that you, you feel and it's intuitive. And yet there's another side that is planning and and sort of that left brain logic stuff. And that's pretty much what this video is showing is why, or what is good technique, what are the, the actual terms that we use that's going to be included um, because, you know, somebody who doesn't know climbing, when they first hear climbers talk, it sounds like a different language. We're talking about drop knee and do a flag and do a gas stone and all this stuff, and so I'm going to be showing those techniques and talking about um, how to position the body on the, our bodies on the rock uh, alignment and
1: things like that. To wrap things up, Lynn, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Sure. You are today's mountain meister. We want to hear who you'd like to hear next on this show.
0: I think that it would be interesting to hear from Alex Megos. And I call him la mega gosse because (laughs) uh, (laughs) in French, uh, gosse means kid. So he's the mega kid. (laughs) He's amazing. He hasn't been climbing that long. He's pretty young. He does speak English, so you will be able to speak to him in English without problem. (laughs) Uh, A lot of Germans speak almost perfect English, so I think that it would be a really interesting conversation because he's just naturally a wise person, it seems. He might be what they call an old soul, and he's done maybe the hardest on-site climb in the world. Um, I, I'm, you'd have to ask him more details about it. But he climbs at the level of 9A, which is like the highest grade. That would be a European grade. Of, I think 14D or 515A. Um, and he's all up to that level. So, and, and he also did Realization in France, this climb that took Chris Sharma a couple of years to do. And he did it. Like on his first day, a couple tries in. I don't know. No not very few Yeah. So it took other climbers that were really good at the time and still very good climbers. Chris is an excellent climber, still climbing at the top of his game. And it took him two years to do something that Alex did in one day. So I'm really curious how he stays so cool. And I think it does have to do with his ability to relax, hmm. Because it's not just about how hard you can pull, it's also there's this uh, yin-yang kind of thing about relaxation and knowing just how hard you need to hang on and, and hmm. timing of your, your muscles working together, the coordination and body awareness and, and how he reads the rock.
1: For the listeners, keep an eye out for MIGA-GO. Did I say that right? Oh, megagos. Megagos. <laughs> <laughs> on a future episode of Mountain Meister, Alex Migos. Lynn Hill, thank you so much for joining us today. Wonderful having you. Thank you. For the listeners, check out more at lynnhillclimbing.com, or you can find highlights of today's episode on our website, mtnmeister.com, on Lynn's Meister profile page. Lynn, thanks. You're welcome. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Mountain Meister with the legend Lynn Hill. Don't forget that Mountain Meister is supported by the Delorme InReach Explorer, the world's only satellite communicator with built-in navigation. Send and receive text messages, create waypoints, and find your way back from anywhere in the world. For 35 bucks off of your purchase, visit inreachdelorme.com. And use the code MEISTER at checkout. Thank you to DeLorme and thank you to you. Enjoy doing the rest of whatever you do when you listen to this podcast. I'm the host, Ben Shank, and you've been listening to Mountain Meister.